Hello and welcome to another episode of We Are Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for this evening. I have to be quiet because I'm actually sitting in a cabin in in the kitchen in a cabin and it's very, very dark. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm really <laughs> and there's a ticking <laughs> clock. And there's a madman making la, noises la, upstairs. Because I'm going to drop this. I'm going to make some noise. And hopefully I, a wild Ben Maddox is Will you stop? I'm a lynx. I'm trying to build up atmosphere here. You you ruinous man. Um, I'm just doing the foley. I'm just doing the just foley. Do the, you do. I've heard you do the foley. Um, and the, the axle as well. And um, so... Jo- Joining me, he's he's a man who I refuse to I, I refuse to acknowledge I refuse to acknowledge that joke. Well, I don't refuse. I don't care. Look at me, je me, je, je me refuse to refuse. <laughs> je ne je ne care pas. <laughs> je, je ne care pas, Jimmy. Um, this is this is the um the possibly the kind of the it's like you know that whole thing about the cat in the box well this is like a box that's got lots of cats in it and we're just opening it up and we're chucking the catnip in and we're going to see what happens because this is what happens when you get two people that are used to speaking to other people in an interview type style because joining me for five games for doomsday he it's the man the machine he's such a machine he's got he's got the letter x at the name of at the end of his name like he's some kind of futuristic cyborg come to long to I am, ask you I am questions. a sci-fi, I'm a sci-fi hero here to make your days better. Sorry, I don't know intru- I don't I interrupt don't, the introduction. It doesn't matter, I usually ramble anyway, so that's fine. It's good that you've jumped in. It's Ben Maddox from Five Games for Doomsday. Hi, Ben. Hello. Hello. I, as I was coming here, as I was coming to the tower, yeah. I, I passed some people and they, they, they said to me, you want to watch that lad <laughs> there? He's a wizard, and I, I, I said, I, I'm pretty sure he isn't, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's what he told me, expressly told me in the email. And I heard, I, I said, I, I listened to his show the other day, and there was this, we're not wizards, <laughs> I heard at the beginning of the show. And I thought, well, I mean, that's all I need to hear. And by the way, yes, love the tower, love the spiral staircases. They're never going out of fashion. They're actually really difficult to clean, to be honest. I mean, I mean... Uh, I know you're kind of like, oh, this is really, really nice. But the reason that spi- spiral staircases and towers have cobwebs is because they're they're just an actual bugger to dust. I mean, getting into the nooks and crannies. I mean, you can get like one of those. So it's 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 not an atmosphere thing. It's, it's, it's not a, a deliberate it's a atmosphere thing. thing. You, no, don't, no, no. you don't buy them in. I mean, literally, literally, it's just laziness. Then. Literally, it's not. It's just over a period of time. You know how difficult it is to ha- you you know how difficult it is to hoover a set of stairs. In general, no, no, never. I, You've I, never. I mean, I've, I, 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 I live in the, I live in the uh, naked city. <laughs> we don't have stairs in our flats here. <laughs> oh, we, we all live in apartments. We don't have hoovers either. But and we all do drug exchanges <laughs> and things. But but who who does the embroidery on your clothing? I mean, how all of those moons and stars and that hat? I mean, that's a hell of a point. Um. I'd like to probably let you into the secret, but it does involve, you know, the little man that appears at the beginning of the show has very deft fingers. 
and he has this I don't know where he got it from, but he was just born with some kind of remarkable embroidering ability. So rather than try and push him down the local kind of normal kind of sports academic activities, we just let him embroider stuff. And he started off with squares and he started off with straight lines and it's just given him kind of more complicated shapes to do. Now, one of the most complicated shapes to embroider is a star. And I just let him... I just let him have a shot of my silk robe and the next thing I knew, the thing was covered in stars. There's not any type of wizardry stuff going in here, Mr. No, Maddox. I mean, just, the thing know. is, the fact, that you, the, the fact that you're waving a oaken stick with a feather wrapped around the end at me, I mean, doesn't suggest anything to me. It's, and you've got sort of various talking frogs jumping around It's just you. like um, the stick with a feather on it is a very, very old duster that uh, was in the family belonged to my grandmother and therefore I don't replace it. The fact that it has the ability to... And I imagine the fact that it's old technology means you can't really do the spiral stairs. That's why the cobwebs are Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's just impossible. As I say, trying to take a Hoover up the spiral stairs at the same time as Hoover is practically an exercise in breaking your own legs. Where are we going with this? I have no idea. Um, I'm stopping you for a second because I feel I have to stop you for a second because I have to say first of all... (laughs) Thank you very, very much for agreeing to come on, because um, that's no problem at all. I've been, um, I've been looking forward to this since we actually arranged this, because I've been cramming in as many of your interviews as possible, and I was always interested in speaking to somebody like yourself because you do what I do, which is to speak to other people and find out information, which is why I was interested in some kind of clash. Um, where I mean. You're an actor by trade. Um, by trade. So, I mean, was that was that going back to kind of like when you were a young younger person? Was that something that you that you were always good at, or was that something that you fell into? Because I find that actors either you 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 say, "Oh, he was the Joker of the class," or it's like, "Well, I actually discovered once I got away from." school and the confines of school and what I was doing, it actually I ended up kind of getting involved in the kind of the creative media, the acting kind of scene because I, I kind of came into my own. So where were you? Were you the kind of the little kind of, you the teacher kind of throwing chalk at you going, Maddox, will you behave and stop doing Charlie Chaplin in the middle of the classroom? You know, or were you the slow well, burner? Well, it was one of those things, you know, it was one of those things where when I went to drama school, I remember speaking with loads of the people I went to drama school with. Yeah. And they were all like, I've always had a passion for theatre. I've been reading Stanislavski since I was three. And the reason I went to drama school was, is because I was poor. Mm. And I think I really wanted to do writing more than I wanted to do acting. But I was good at acting and I got an unconditional, I was good at acting and I was fucking lazy, basically, which meant I got an unconditional offer to go to drama school, which meant I didn't have to pass my A-levels. So I thought, well, I mean, I could work to pass my A-levels or I could spend the last three months of my sixth form getting stoned, you know. So it was clear what I was going to do. And so... I always loved acting. I was always good at it. And and this is a relative term because I, I realised when I went to drama school, which is incredibly interesting, because I came from a town of 3,000 people, right? All right. And so I was the best in the town. 
because there was no one in the town. Apart from farmers and alcoholics, you know. And I, I got to drama school and it was really sobering because I was surrounded by these people who were amazing. You know, I mean, loads better than I will ever be, you know. And, and so it was one of those, it was one of those things. I was always good at it and I was always, I always felt really comfortable in a theatre. Even if the play is crap, even if the money's crap, there's something lovely about arriving at the theatre at sort of six o'clock before an eight o'clock kickoff. Yeah. And just sitting in the empty auditorium facing the set and just sitting there and thinking, wow, I like being here. And I probably like being here more than I like almost anywhere else in the world, apart from maybe at the foot of a hill or the shore of a lake. You know what I mean? But we, I mean, did you find it natural? Was it easy for you to be acting? Because I know some people that, um, I know we joke before it's like, oh, you know, do you want to do it? Well, I'll do it on the night. And it's like, well, it is the night. And it's like, okay, that's pretty good. But I mean, when I was doing that, I know I'm going to be, you're going to be like, oh, here we go. But I used to do kind of a lot of musical theatre. And I was the type of person was, I was pretty much the do it on the night type of person. I would get right. up, you know, within kind of like, you know, because the Amdram's like a hobby. And the reason it's a hobby is because people kind of take essentially a musical or a play that could probably be learned within a much shorter time and they stretch it out <laughs> over a six-month period to give people somewhere to go on a Sunday evening or a Monday night. Christ, kind of I, I, cannot, I cannot tell you the... Because I did a lot of Amdram when I was a teenager. And the length of time you have to rehearse the show and let the show just stay yeah. and all of that is just bloody wonderful as a professional because because there's money involved yeah and because you have to pay the people to be there and you have to hire the rehearsal spaces you get no bloody time i mean i did a production in vienna of the mouse trap and i the rehearsal time was two weeks and i was playing the policeman and basically the policeman doesn't come on for the first 40 minutes but then he comes on after about 40 minutes and then and then is on the stage for the next hour and 20 minutes and doesn't shut his mouth yeah. And having two weeks to rehearse that was was unbelievable. I mean, absolutely, you know, the first night comes and I, I'm thinking, do I know what I'm fucking talking about? Am I going to just ruin this? And, you know, it it was all right on the night. But I mean, what I what I really found out about being at drama school is that I think what drama school taught me is not to be a good actor. Because I think, I think to a degree, acting talent is natural, which is why I'll never be top draw. I'll always be bang average. Um, all professional standards, probably better than most people who act. Yeah. Because most people who act are amateur, but, you know, bang average. But what drama school taught me was the discipline. And people think, you know, acting is this loose profession where everyone's pissed all the time and that to some degree is true but actors are meticulously punctual for instance yes actors really work hard they do their job i mean the reason you're punctual as an actor is especially in england is that if you're late they sack you because the job that you've been hired for there are ten thousand people in the country who would happily take it 
in an instant, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, so you, yeah. you you just don't. Yeah. So you have to be disciplined. You have to be there and present and do your job. Um, I can't remember what the question was, but I'm basically saying I am great. <laughs> Give me money. <laughs> but is that your learning style? I mean, can you just? I, I mean, and I'm not just, a wizard, but I. You probably are. I think we're going to establish that you're going to talk yourself into the fact that there's there's a question here about which one of us is a wizard. And I think by the end of it, they're going to answer and they're going to walk away and they're going to say, you know, he's got the magical number five in his podcast name. That's the wizard kind of over there. They're going to be all pointing their fingers kind of at you. So do you have... Are you the type of actor that does... Do you do character stuff? I mean, when you're learning stuff, is it a case that you... Do you have to kind of go into character when you're learning stuff? Or are you the type of person that you would generally kind of learn the lines and then you would build it up to kind of build the character in? Because, it, I mean, you get different types of folk that... You know, there's all... Different types of people that will say, right, okay, I, I need to learn the lines in my head and then I'll bring the character in afterwards. Or are you the type of person that you says, right, okay, I'm... 68 years old, I am doing this and I'm going to bring the voice, I'm going to bring the characterization, everything like the kind of what they call the kind of the methody type style. Or do you not get that luxury because well, you're, you're on a gig and you just try to get paid? Well, sort of as a professional, you generally don't get, you generally don't get cast as people who are much older than you, mm. much younger than you. Mm much different than you. Right. So you usually generally get cast in a certain range. Yeah. But I, I'm one I'm one of those actors that has this sort of irrational thing and I I think a lot of actors feel this that, you know, I could be playing a child murderer. And if someone says, Oh, your character's a bit of a despicable human being, I would go, No, you don't understand him. You know, actually, there are aspects to his character that aren't that bad. I'm one of those people who sort of really, I, I think the key is you kind of have to identify with your character. And a lot of the work I do when I'm getting into character, for want of a better phrase, is just kind of knowing who they are, identifying with them, and bringing those aspects of my personality that link up with their personality. Yeah. And I, I guess I guess playing a character is an act of empathy, is understanding. So, so it's saying I am playing someone, so I'm playing Hitler, you know, who is sort of objectively terrible. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know if you've seen The Downfall. Yes. Like, but the way Bruno Gantz plays Hitler in that is he doesn't go, oh, I'm playing a villain. He says, I'm playing a human being who believes he's right, which makes that performance compelling. Yes. It makes that performance believable. And I think that's kind of the work that most actors do, is learning the lines is the sort of minimum requirement. What you do is you... The work you do away from the rehearsal room is thinking, who is this person? How would this person react to this situation? Do I know a situation in which I would react in a similar way? What does that mean? Do they laugh? Mm -hmm. Do they laugh when something bad happens to them? Do they cry? Do they scream? Do they shout? Do they go silent? And all of this sort of stuff. And all, I mean, the beauty about it is I, I tend to do it when I'm walking 
around and I'm walking to rehearsals and I, I run these ideas through my head and I say, who is this person and what do they do? What are they like? And all of this. And then when you get to the rehearsal space, I, I guess what the director's job to do is to, is to say, you're saying that too quickly, you're saying that too slowly. Yeah. Maybe you should think about not being so angry here. The actor should, I guess, walk into the rehearsal room kind of with their intentions all sorted out. Yes. And it helps being an empathetic person, I suppose. Yeah. So are you the type of person do you take? Do you have to learn to take direction then and that you almost criticism quite well? Kind of thing. Is no. I am I am I'm I'm very much a believer in the hierarchy of theatre. Yeah. I'm very much a believer in the fact that actors are movable props. Yeah. The director is the boss, uh-huh. they are the dictator. And and there's a um, there's a phrase in theatre. It's TTFN, which is take the fucking note. Yeah. So if a if a director says to you, do it this way, and it's completely at odds with what you think the character is, yeah. You say, okay, cool. And that's your professional obligation. Yeah. I mean, especially when you have no time to rehearse a show. If you don't, you can't hold up the show with your own fucking issues. Yeah. You have to just do what the director says, because your job as an actor fundamentally is to do what the director says. So, no, I mean, part of being a professional actor, I think, is understanding that when the director says, no, you do it this way, you go, fine, and you make that work for yourself. So did you go into it kind of like, did you go into it like a lot of people go into a professional kind of occupation, which is, did you go in it with aspirations of fame and fortune and all that? Or were you quite a realist being involved kind of like in, I guess, being involved in the educational establishment, getting educated, going to like, uh, you know, being trained kind of professionally and everything like that, were you aware of how difficult it was going to be, the profession you were getting into? Did they knock that out you quite quickly at at stage school to say like, okay, there's going to be 500 people turn up at this rehearsal and guess what? You're going to be number 300 because you're just not going to fit this role. Or, you know, did they kind of knock that out you quite quickly or is it something they let you kind of learn that you're going to get, you know, failure's going to be there? they can't. Um, drama school Drama school is wonderful in the sense that you have three years to focus solely on your craft, mm. on your art, mm. to really feel like an actor. Then you go out into the real world. And, I mean, my first three years at drama school, I had my heart broke over and over and over again for a myriad of reasons. It was absolutely horrendous. And I took it really poorly. Mm. I I took, I mean, I I guess to some degree it's still true. I I took rejection terribly, and I guess I still do to some degree. And so it was, was, they can't prepare you for that. And they can't prepare you. They can say to you, oh, you know, you're going to be rejected for everything. The fact is, when you're at drama school, all you're thinking about is when I leave drama school and I get a job at the RSC, when I leave drama school and I get a job in the new Steven Spielberg movie, when I leave drama yeah. school, it's all going to be wonderful. And then, you know, for some people it is. Some people I went to drama school with who, I mean, uh, and who were better than me, have had absolutely stellar careers. Yeah. You know, 
And I haven't. I've scrabbled around in the basement. I mean, so so as an example, I did a play reading the other night, and it was for a 9-11 truther conspiracy play. Okay. okay. And it was, it was just a one-night reading in front of a basically... I didn't realise that this was a thing. The German 9-11 truther people all came Whoa. to this play reading. And it was absolutely insane. And there was a Q&A afterwards. And one of the actors in the show was a was a true believer, right? And so he was, you know, the government, the government did it. And <clears throat> they detonated the buildings to start the war in Iraq so Halliburton could make all this money, you know. And, you know, absolutely incredible. I mean, to the point, the last line of the play... The main character, who's uh, this, this woman who's the main character of the play, looks at the audience and says, 9-11 was a coup d'etat. And, you know, it was an awful play as well. I mean, it was an awful play. It was like the guy had gone onto an Alex Jones website, copy and pasted stuff into scenes. I mean, really terrible stuff. And this is what you do. I mean, it's interesting. It doesn't pay any yeah. money and you sort of scrabble around in the basement you scrabble around in the basement of acting, and and most of the, most of the work I do is voiceover stuff, which is quite well paid, but it's corporate vacuous stuff. You know, I mean, it's not yeah. when if someone says to you, you know, when you leave drama school, what do you want to do? Yeah, I want to do a thirty second video on how to use a pallet in a factory. You <coughs> you don't. <laughs> But, you know, it's well paid and it exercises the skills you learnt, you've learned yeah. to do as a craftsman. So, I mean, I've, I've had very many interesting times as an actor and many terrible times and many barren and fallow times. And it's just the nature of being a working actor, I guess. Do you not think of, like, backing out? Have you got to the point where you've kind of, like, all went, do you know what, this the- is just, yeah. You know, all the bloody time. And, you know, the point is it usually happens, it usually coincides with I'll do a performance and it's crap. Or so like at yeah. Christmas, I, I did a production of A Christmas Carol and I just hated it. I just hated it. It was poorly paid. I didn't get on with any of the cast and I didn't think I was very good in it either. And, you know, I sort of thought, well, maybe it's time to put up the old acting boots and think about something else and then your agent calls you and said you've got a job on Tuesday at a recording studio to do a voiceover for a VW YouTube mm-hmm. video and you go oh okay yeah. because it's going to pay you money so yeah all, all the time all the time I think about quitting but you know it's you know when when people are paying you to do something that's just so bloody great even if it's not exactly what you envisage you do it because that's what you live for i guess is that is that what pushed you into kind of like creating your own stuff to kind of bring back a little bit of control so that you were not relying not a case of you weren't relying on the creativity of others that you were actually kind of saying right okay i am going to decide What's kind of going out there? I am essentially deciding the words, the script, the direction myself. Was that kind of, I mean, what kind of drove you to say, right, okay, I'm going to start, you know, the podcast or start my own kind of little creative avenue? Well, I've written for years. 
I've written a hmm. book which is sitting on my hard drive, you know, 100,000 yeah. words, seven years of work, and it's just sitting on my hard drive and I haven't done anything <laughs> with it yet. But um, what is it, what's that about? No, no, stop. You can't say you've written a book and then attempt to move on to something else. What is this book? It's a um, loosely connected set of short stories about people living in a small country town in the west of England, essentially. All right, okay. And it's it's just sort of the struggles of being in the middle of nowhere, being a human being and trying to navigate through the world and how bloody difficult it is, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, have you always done creative things then? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as always. You, have you always. Has it always been something you've been doing then? I mean, was there, is, you, is you actually getting into like the podcasting side of things, is that just a natural kind of evolution for you? Was that always going to happen? You know, think? it's it's one of the, it's one of those things, isn't it? Um, I never really thought about doing a podcast till I got into board gaming, and then when I got mm. into board gaming, I thought there's an avenue here. I, I mean, I guess I guess initially it was sort of like, God, without sounding dreadful, I, I, I kind of thought there's something I can do here that people aren't doing. Yes. That's that's a that's that's a bit more interesting, and I, I mean, this is my third board game venture as a podcast, and the other two, the other two sort of didn't work out for whatever reasons. And you know, if you want to get into that at some point, I'm willing to dish as much dirt as you want. But <laughs> this one, I want to do interviews with people in the industry, but I don't yeah. want it to be marketing. I'm just not interested in. You know, although inevitably it becomes that. I'll explain the premise to the listeners who may not know the show. So basically, the yeah, idea yeah. is I get I get I get people from the board gaming world. I've done Ignacy Trevichek, Rani Kadizia, da 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 da, and it's basically desert island discs. So they have doomsday has come, and they've had to flee to a cabin in the woods, and they can only take five of their games with them, and. Through that, you sort of learn about who the person is, what are their origin story. With certain people, I go off into other areas that aren't gaming and talk about their careers and things like this. Other people like Ryan Kanitia, because he's like a legend in the industry, it's very sort of gaming focused. And through these interviews, I'm, I'm not interested. I mean, if people want to pimp their latest game, that's fine. But I, yeah. I tell them beforehand, this isn't going to be an hour of marketing. I, I want something interesting. I, I'm going to talk about things that I think people would be interested in about you as a person. Now, at the end, yeah. if you want to crowbar in, you know, buy my game tomorrow, that's that's all good. But I'm, I, I found that mostly board game media was reviews or... Yes. Watch your new Kickstarter, which is which is fine, but I'm just not interested in doing that. And because I I came off a project which was a partnership that ended really sourly, sort of right. publicly sourly too. Um, I thought I I want to do something. I mean, as much as to say to my former partner, "Fuck you," as much as anything, I I want to I want to do something, and. But I have to do it on my own because I, I just don't trust anyone else, Any uh, certainly yeah. at the moment. So I want to do it on my own. So what can I do? And I, I came up with this idea and I thought, that's that's a nice idea. And I can speak to, I know, loads of interesting people. Through the last podcast, I got to know a lot of really super interesting people. And so I thought, great, I'll do that. And it 
means I take more of a back seat, but at the same time, that's fine because, frankly, you know, who the fuck am I? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I see where you're coming so- from. Sorry I mean, about I... this, but sorry about this as well. You're probably going to have to beep this or or put an E no. rating, but no, it doesn't fucking matter. Um, <laughs> Boom. No, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, that's where I was kind of aiming for. I think it happens sometimes, and it does. It doesn't happen sometimes. It depends on the nature of the person. I mean, I don't, you know, I get asked the question all of the time when I we have the interview, right? What, what are we going to talk about? What are their main points of discussion? And I don't know if it's because other people put together exhaustive show notes and say, here's the five points you want to talk about. And normally my show notes go along this lines. First of all, I very, I very rarely give show notes apart from the kind of the housekeeping stuff to say, this is how we record. Yeah. And on the other side of it, I don't, I never try and lead people. I think if people have a story, that kind of story naturally comes out. And sometimes it's about making people kind of feel comfortable Um. In the conversation, because not everybody, and you forget this sometimes, that not everybody that's appearing on a podcast is doing it because they want to. Some people are appearing on the podcast because they've been told as part of, you know, the they're exercising marketing to help their game. They should be speaking to X number of people in order to help kind of get the exposure. So there's a lot of people that aren't comfortable when they come on the show. And I think my And Christ, job- you're, dealing with, you're dealing with board game people. And, you know, it's not a, I, I, you know, I don't want to say that all board game people are socially awkward. and But, I mean, certainly there's a constituency in board gaming of people and designers that I've met who are lovely people. Oh, yeah. but are not comfortable in front of a microphone and not comfortable in front of a camera. No. So it, so, so no. it is an issue, obviously. And it's finding where they are comfortable. And, and sometimes it's like it means leading them into a conversation which has nothing to do with what they're there to talk about. And sometimes you'll find... I mean, we usually aim, I usually aim to record for an hour and I usually aim to edit out as little as possible because I think yeah. sometimes it takes away from the general conversation. But, I mean, sometimes I will start off a conversation and we... You know, we won't even speak about or talk about board games for that length of time. It'll be a conversation like this. I'll be talking about you. And I think that makes you kind of comfortable to a point where it then moves it away. It's like the whole Christian Guru Mercy thing, talking with uh, Richard Ayodi about kind of talking about his book and saying, I have to ask you a serious question in order so that we can talk about the advert and, you know, that kind of thing. But I I, I don't know. I think... um, I think that um, yeah, I I think well, the thing is, we're we're very different, you know. We're very different in our styles. We were sort of talking about this off mic, but Mm. I I write almost every question I ask is is pre written, just because I like I don't like to walk a tightrope without a net. Whereas you seem you seem completely comfortable with that, and that's great. And I think it it elicits a slightly different product, if you know what I mean. So so yeah. And 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 this is not a qualitative thing. I think I think what you do is great. I've been listening to you a lot over the last few days, and and it's really not difficult to do as you put out about thirty seven podcasts an hour. <laughs> and, <laughs> And um, thir- thirty-five this week because it is only as a shorter month in February. Exactly. So scheduling, you know. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where 
I listen to your interviews and they to to give a sort of popular sort of comparison, they feel more much more like a sort of Joe Rogan sort of thing where the mics go on, there's no pre-planning, you just, you know, you know you're sat opposite an interesting person, let's have a conversation. Whereas I'm yeah. I'm sort of very focused on kind of what it is about that person I want to talk about, and I'm scared shitless that I'm going to get sort of 20 minutes in and they're just going to clam up because I don't have the reservoirs of creativity that you do. I mean, I assume it's some sort of Patronus that you that you conjure up. <laughs> It's um it's um yeah, I mean in a technical sense it's not it's kind of a C B thingy. It's a subliminal message spell that we send, you know, you haven't noticed it, but potentially you are able to be in a relaxed state and you are able to just filter your mind. It's kind of taught very early on at wizard school to persuade people to not think you're a wizard. So, you know, it's you know you're technically oh, kind that, of under that... a spell, but yeah, it's it's kind of a relaxing type thing, so it you kind know, of works. Frankly, any any attention is good attention, even if you're manipulating me mentally. That's fine. I I think it's fine. I mean, you will find a lot of wizards are in sales because generally, you know, the art of persuasion is something that a wizard kind of does, kind of kind of very very kind of very very well. Um, have you been in the situation where you've had to kind of drag out? the conversation into a different direction where the questions haven't entirely worked? Or have you been in a situation where you've asked one question and it's like you've, you're have you like the little Dutch boy taking his finger out the dam and everything is just flooded and almost washed you away? There are some people, and, and actually to their credit, most of them. So I do extensive editing on my show. I, right. I edit out. I like to have... Some shows, it's just inevitable they're going to be longer, but I like to sort of have between an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. And so I I edit to that. And and, and actually, most people say, you're going to have to bear with me, I talk a lot, if they talk a lot. Um, Mostly, people are great. Occasionally, you'll ask a question that just bombs, and they'll give you a one-word answer. I'm usually good at following up on that, improvising and say, so so why yeah. does that answer merit that, you know? Um no, it's it's actually I, I I have found mostly that it's more of an issue of people not shutting up as opposed to people uh people clamming up and not answering questions. I, I, I think people love talking about themselves, right? And Yeah rarely get the opportunity and i i think within the board game world because it's such a nascent industry because because it's only sort of clambering out of the sort of ad hoc amateur world into sort of professionalism you find these people who are i mean you know the equivalent of new york times best selling authors who've never done a bloody interview before you know or have done very few interviews and once you get them warmed up I think they love it. I mean, it was really interesting when I interviewed Rainer Knizia. For the first five minutes, I thought, this is going to be an absolute bloody disaster. You know, <laughs> I, I thought he was being quite sort of German, quite robotic, quite sort of by the numbers. But after a while, he warmed up and he was absolutely fascinating. I mean, really one of the best best interviews I've done. And 
not because I was skilled in any particular way. And in in the same way, I, I think you sort of, you developed quite a sort of relaxing atmosphere. I think the way I do it is momentum. I I keep asking questions until I hit on something mm. that people are going to talk about, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I do deal with people. I mean, you talked, you know, the person that's all of a sudden discovered they're, you've got a, a New York Times bestseller. I am suddenly, I am sometimes speaking to people who have gone from absolutely nothing to all of a sudden running a six-figure Kickstarter campaign. Right. You know, that all of a sudden they have... You know, somebody said, right, they, they all of it. I mean, um, you know, there's a there's a list of people. You know, you're Frank West who did City of Kings. There's Mark Neidlinger um, who did Vindication. And they and they went, and, you know, Peter Blenken at Subterra. And they went from running, you know, putting a Kickstarter out there like everybody does, expecting a funding goal of 10,000, whatever. And they romped home at six figures. And all of a sudden people are picking up on their campaign and they're getting asked to be on interviews or somebody says they should be going and doing interviews and they're like I'm just a I'm just a board game designer I have no idea how to really speak about it and then they enter into the kind of the robotic kind of I'm just going to talk about I'm comfortable with the gameplay I'm comfortable talking about the mechanics I'm comfortable talking about the design process and I think my way to look at about it is I'm interested in the person behind it because I'm always conscious that and maybe this is where my ego comes in is I'm always conscious of maybe the last couple of podcasts have been in, that's all that's happened is all they've been asked about is the gameplay. All they've been asked about the mechanics. And nobody's actually asking, well, shit, you're doing like a hundred thousand, you've done a hundred thousand dollars in like the space of two days. How are you feeling about that kind of thing? Where well, are you I, mentally? I, are you sure, you know? I mean, my goal is to do the exemplary interview of these people to sort of, I mean, without wanting to sound hugely pretentious, to have this sort of notion that if, you know, when, God forbid, Rainer Knizia dies and people say, who the, who was this guy? They can go yeah. back and there is something there that is a record of who the person was, what they did and what motivated them as an artist. And this is the thing. I, I, I think I see board game designers as artists. And so I approach them in that way. So I want to know about their motivations. I want to know about their process because I'm super interested in that myself. You know, when I think of J.G. Ballard, you know, he went to his writing desk at midday and every hour he would ring on a bell and someone would bring him a scotch and he'd have a scotch at the the top of each hour when he was writing. And, you know, Roald Dahl would sort of walk out into his garden and he had a shed. I mean, a posh shed, but nevertheless, a shed in which he wrote all of his stuff. All of that stuff is super fascinating to me. And, I mean, you had, you know, Elizabeth Davidson on, who is, if we're talking about New York Times bestsellers, I mean, she had an article in the New York Times just the other day. And Wingspan is, you know, Wingspan is this huge... I don't know, board game equivalent of White Teeth by Zadie Smith. You know, this thing that just Mm. explodes. And suddenly she's gone from... I mean, it's really interesting reading the New York Times article because she had a super interesting career just outside of board gaming. But suddenly she's become this name that is on everybody's lips. And this, this thing is, you know, changing. 
this idea of scientifically rigorous board games. They've been around for ages, but I don't think any have sort of touched the zeitgeist in the way that Wingspan has. And it, it's going to presage this sort of, I assume, cavalcade of scientifically rigorous games that deal with biology and chemistry. And I think that's just just fantastic. And you you get to and because board gaming is so bloody parochial and still sort of climbing out of the ad hoc into the professional, you get to speak yeah. to these people. I mean I spoke to I I know Ignacy Trevacek and and what people don't realise with Ignacy is he essentially invented gaming in Poland. Before the Iron yeah. Curtain fell, there was nothing. And he was the first RPG writer that came in Poland. He is essentially Polish gaming, which is bloody incredible, right? An absolute living legend. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Elizabeth is um, it's kind of been like a perfect storm. And it's interesting, the circumstances that are surrounding the game, that she's getting they're getting so much publicity because she was, um, I think she was involved in politics. Yeah, yeah. When I was speaking to her, that's what she did. And she says, that was my professional career. And then she got into her professional career working in, I think she says, working in the government. And she turned around and she went, this is rubbish. I don't like doing this. And then she fell into kind of board games and that. And then she's kind of made, kind of made wingspan. And I think the interesting thing is I've already seen comments about people are saying, well, you know, wingspan, is it, is it going to be still here in kind of like six months? And it's a case of, well, it's probably going to be here in a couple of years because it's very rare that something that gets that much exposure kind of into the public domain kind of just disappears. But it would be interesting to see. But our, I guess my conversation with her was we didn't talk about the gameplay, how you played Wingspan at all. Because I was going to be aware there was going to be so much media coverage, oh, Christ, of gameplay Christ, videos who cares? and review video, and I was just like, I was just like, and we actually, I think we men- I mentioned it to her afterwards. I says, yeah, I didn't, I purposefully stayed away from actually talking about the game. Um, it, it's game one of my bugbears. Of it, you know? It's one of my bugbears, and I, I went on Twitter in a rare sort of act of frustration. I, I don't. I I know it works for some people, but I don't like to air my grievances on Twitter. I think it's unseemly. But mm. Christ, I mean, I write reviews and I, I write a weekly review. And sort of the structure of my reviews are very much sort of how you'd read a movie review or a book review. They're meandering, they're... They, they take a sort of, I, my sort of structure is I take a central concept and then I elaborate on that concept and how it applies mm-hmm. to this particular game. And Christ, the criticism I get, some people say, this isn't a review. I've no idea how to play the game. And I'm like, I I'm not here to explain the fucking rules. Go and watch a Rodney Smith video. Read the bloody rule book. I'm here to tell yeah. you what the experience of the game is like. What the game does to you. How it fires the neurons in your brain or doesn't fire the neurons in your brain. Frankly, if you and I, I and I think I think the board game industry has slightly been damned by the first sort of big reviewer. The structure of their reviews is you know, they give you the rules of the game and then some comments on it. I'm not interested in telling you the rules of the game. You, you can find those things yourself. 
I'm much more interested in telling you how the game affects you. How the game affects me and if you sort of have any sort of empathetic reaction to that, how it will affect you. Talking about mm-hmm. how the game plays and you take three cards and then you roll some dice and then you put the dice here. on It's just the antithesis of what a board game review should be. It's the antithesis of what a board game interview should be. There are rule books to do it, right? But you used to see um, back in the days of um, the early kind of video game and computer game days, you used to see that. You used to see it was the same kind of thing. It wasn't until I think it was like the Edge magazine came mm. out where they kind of started to drift into kind of like the emotional kind of response. And I think that's the maturity that um, board game media needs to grasp on is the kind well, of it, getting into the point where it's kind of like this is how this is how this game is going to make you feel. You know, it's like if I wrote something, say about, like, say letters of White, letters from Whitechapel. I would probably talk about the tension that was created in the room with right. the police try to find Jack the Ripper. There's no point in going because the mechanics themselves are fairly. It's fairly dull. You know, have you ever have you ever, uh, down, move, you know. have you ever read a fucking rule book? Christ, it's boring. I yeah. mean, most of the write, most of the writing in board gaming is terrible, but. I mean, even the flavor text is usually dreadful. But at the same, and, and also, rule books are technical manuals. There's a reason people don't take the instruction manual to a Hoover to bed with them and read it, right? It's nah. not interesting. I mean, it's slightly different with board game rules, I guess, in the sense that you can imagine the fun you may have. But I've never been one of those people who can read a rule book and say, Oh no, I, I know whether I'm gonna like this game or not. I mean they they the fun I extract from a game bears no relevance to how the rules are as written to me. And mm-hmm. and so you know, an explanation of the rules tells me nothing unless it's someone like Rodney Smith or or Paul Grogan who I don't watch their how to play videos for entertainment. I have the game, I want to know how to play the game, so I'll watch their video. It's purely utilitarian. And I think the yes. way we talk about games needs to change from utilitarian to criticism, whatever that means. But talking about how the games affect you as opposed to how they play, because that's not bloody interesting fundamentally. And I, I think it will change. And it's starting to change with the shift in with the shift in game theme. Something like Holding On, which is just the most incredible <laughs> thing to come out of gaming ever. Oh, you're holding it in your hand. I'm holding you know, it in my hand. It's on my mic. It's on. It's on my mic. I mean, such a such a, such an audacious and brave, and absolutely shattering experience of a game what 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 cinema is what video games are board gaming is becoming and i think the commentary around it will become that too and i hope that i'm contributing to that that's that's my absolute intention to write things that are engaging and interesting and and frankly i love the interviews and I think they're valuable, but I'm in it for the writing. It's the writing I mean, that really fires my cannon. But right. the holding on is a perfect example 
of a review of a game that needed some kind of emotional input in it and how it made the player feel. Because I've read reviews that talk about the mechanics of how you play the troubled life of Billy Kerr. And if they're measuring the game by the mechanics and how it plays, I've seen complaints of people saying it's bloody unfair. It's really, really unfair. It's such a frustrating game. You get halfway through kind of playing and then all of a sudden it's like the deck's against you and you just lose. And it's and that makes it frustrating and terrible. And yet they're missing out the key fact of, of the story and the emotions and everything that's built around it. And it's like, it is one of these games that I think, if you talk about the mechanics and whether you know, you're plotting a graph is, are the mechanics fun of it against it? Are the mechanics effective? It's like you're going to miss out on the key point of this game. And the people that have reviewed it and really liked it and been passionate about it have said, it is the story that involves around it. It's the... Um, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm, it's how it affects you kind of thing I'm a Eurogamer, I love rigorous mechanics but hmm. I remember I was playing I was playing Holding On and there's this one card and he stood in the kitchen on the phone a, middle, a pudgy middle aged bloke in a pink t-shirt and boxer shorts and he's talking on the phone to someone and I just looked at that card and I thought, Christ you never see that in a board game Something yeah. that is just unremittingly honest and something that is just a, a snapshot, a moment of a person's life taken and given to you to deal with. What is he talking on the phone about? You can see by his posture it's not good. You can see something has happened. And let's be frank, off. You'll get phone calls in your life delivering news that you never want to hear. News yeah. that is going to rip your heart out of your body. And that card said that to me. Is it his wife saying, I'm leaving you? Is it his daughter saying, I hate you? Is it his, yeah. a nurse phoning up saying, your father's passed away? Who knows? But that sort of, evocation of the pure human experience is something that board gaming needs not all the time i'm happy to sell fucking tomatoes but yeah. at the same time i want something that is going to do the same to me that um playing coming home the video game does something that yes yeah you know something that does the same to me that lamor by Michael Haneke does. Board gaming has the ability to elevate itself to pure, profound art. And it's something like Holding On, and I will always talk about this game, it's something like Holding On that has that aspiration, and that's really positive. And I think it's the, it's the explosion of board gaming, that it's becoming more and more popular, that it's attracting all of these different kinds of people who want to tell you different stories, that is making it so vibrant. And I guess... I guess part of what I want to do in reaction to that in the terms of the criticism that I do is to aid that because I think I think critics are bottom feeders in every industry I don't think that's the artists do the critics criticize but one thing critics can do is say to the rest of the world look this is valuable this is vibrant this is something that can 
tell you what it is to be a human being in a world yeah. where, frankly, I mean, the fundamental injustice about being human is that you'll die one day. And the injustice is, is that you bloody know it's going to happen. And art is a way of dealing with that fundamental injustice. And board games, something like holding on, deals with that. And I think it's wonderful. I think it's an absolutely wonderful, laudable thing. And we need more of it. Yeah, I know. And I, I mean, I've got, I mean, I've got this. I've got Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea. So when I want to go about and hit people over the head, I'll play that. But right. I'm kind of, it's one of these things. I'm kind of, I'm looking forward to playing this with a couple of different people just to see kind of how they react. And I would usually look at a game of playing a, a game with a couple of people because they would like the mechanics, not necessarily because of the emotional experience that they might get from it. So that's where I'm kind of looking with this game to say, well, is it the type of game I could sit down with my wife and say, okay, I know it's a difficult subject matter, but do you want to play this as a mm. game? A normal thing would be, I don't want to play games. Just I'll burn them if you come yeah. to me again with a board game. Um, whereas um, this might be something I can say, well, look, this is an, a kind of a more emotional story-based type journey with, you know, obviously there's some mechanics in there that she'll, you know, we'll have to learn together, but I think that could be very, very interesting. On the other side, I'm not going to bring, say, Heroes of Land, Air and Sea to the table, um, because I know that it'll just be like there's not, there's not a chance it's ever gonna, it's ever gonna kind of, gonna kind of happen. And the thing is, it's, it, board gaming should be like every entertainment medium. Sometimes you want to watch mm. sort of comic book shit. Sometimes you want to watch a quiz show. Sometimes yeah. you want total vacuity and then sometimes you want something serious something profound something that is going to try and answer questions about what it is to be a human there is room for all of this stuff you know i'm i'm a massive fan of trick-taking games and there's no trick-taking games out there that are telling me about the the problems of bereavement and that's perfectly fine because what i get from mm. a trick-taking game when i play it for an hour is utter is being utterly engrossed in something that is familiar and comforting. And that's games can be absolutely everything. And if people want to ignore this new wave of games that have some sort of deeper connection to art or whatever, they're perfectly fine to do that too. It is fundamentally a, an act of recreation and that's cool too, you know. Yeah, I mean, I saw the. Um, there was always a there was a bit of a backlash when we got the release of um, games like um, Life is Strange and Gone Home and things like that in the mm. video game space. You know, there were like people were saying this is just some kind of arty type nonsense. It isn't a proper. Where's my gun? It's a walking right. simulator, which seemed to be something that kind of came out. So it's interesting to see kind of where that kind of thing kind of goes. I mean, with regards to yourself, are you? Would you go? more into the media i mean would you do kind of more kind of video type thing because where i was i mean from the podcasts that you do which are fantastic um everything from the guild um that i've been listening to through to the to the interviews to the reviews because the bit I, I mentioned this the other day but the best thing about the the reviews on the podcast are they're short they're sharp and they're different and they're really, really interesting. But would you go to the next level and start doing the kind of the, the types of videos? Because I kind of put I would put up your style next to kind of the shut up and sit down where you would explain 
the stuff, but it would be it'd be very not kind of dry and this is the mechanics and this is the positives and negatives. Shut up and sit down generally kinda of get into kind of a little bit more of an emotional kind of involvement, what they actually think the player might kind of think and feel when they play the game. Well, it's one of those things, isn't it? Tonight's experience. So before I spoke to you, I'd arranged to do a live stream. And then I realised as the as the time for the live stream kicked up that I needed a third party software to stream at all, and I realised I had no bloody idea how to do it. So part of the, my part of my issue with video, audio is so controllable. Yeah, it's you know especially you know I'm completely skint all of the time, so I've never got any money, and audio is wonderfully controllable. I don't know. I, I would like to do, to go into video at some point. Certainly not in the sense with my podcast. It would require maybe my podcast in a sort of shortened form. But it, I'm cautious at the moment because I don't know what I'm bloody doing. And I, I don't just want to do something. I don't want it to look shitty, essentially. That's... yeah. My my main goal is I want it to sound good, professional, structured, worked upon. I want I want to do something that is good, not just mm-hmm. there. And so my concern with video is I don't have the equipment and I don't have the expertise as yet. But as I go on into the future, and if you know, if my crowdfunder increases and I'm able to sort of I, I, I think before I do video I would quite like to at least do a course on how to deal with a DSLR. What are they called? DSLR? Is that what they're called? Yeah. One of those I swank, think so. swanky cameras. I know the ones I'd, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. the swanky camera. I'd swanky least, camera will do. Exactly. I, I'd at least like to do a course so I know how to use that rather than just stick stuff on my face and go oh, all right here's ben how's it going and you know people can't people can't see me and and stuff you know so it's uh you'd have to have a hat and you'd have to have a bit of like, corn, corn corner sticking out your mouth right. like that you, i'm in the, the field billy kerr so this bloke like billy kerr he's a right miserable old <laughs> bastard isn't he? just because he had an heart attack needs to bloody cheer up didn't he Thanks exactly. for getting himself to my out in a tractor and stuff like that, you know. Thanks when, for coming to my TED talk. When my bloody combine <laughs> broke down, I didn't moan. I got on you with it. You didn't moan at all. I fixed, you got straight up again. I fixed the bugger and then I, I and then I did the top field. So Billy, shut you your bloody mouth. You haven't given me my spanner back though. You haven't given me my spanner back. I'm still looking for that. That's, Don't pretend you haven't stolen it. That's because I stuck it up my ass. <laughs> I'll come and get it later then, won't I? Because it is Tuesday. <laughs> um, I don't know where to go after we've talked about sticking tools for tractors into bottoms. Um, if people want to keep an eye on where you exist on the internet webs, where do you exist on the internet webs, Mr. Maddox? On all of the webs. So I, the most important ones, because I, I try to engage with Facebook, but frankly, fuck Facebook. Um, Twitter, at Five <laughs> <a> Gate. <laughs> Indeed. 
You can't you can't <laughs> find you can't find the spanner where I've stuck it in Facebook. Um, no. So um. it's at Five Games for Doomsday on the Twitters. My website is Five Games for Doomsday and yeah, all of the stuff's there. I've got inter- I've got interviews with some of the greatest people in gaming. I've got reviews of some of the greatest games in gaming and all of that sort of gubbins. Go there, follow me, listen to my show, and furnish me with your cash. Yes, go to Patreon. It's at five patreon.com forward slash fight games for doomsday, isn't it? Five G for D. Five G for D. Cause so Ben does stuff. It's like us. But it's imagine if us went away for a bit and actually got a bit of an education about us and knew what we were doing. That's Ben. Just imagine if, you know, this was a podcast hosted by someone who isn't a wizard. Imagine. <laughs> imagine that indeed. Thank you for that. <laughs> he just flicked. He just flicked the V's at me for all the American it listeners. It was. That won't it mean was anything to you. Bird. No, it was like you know. It was my magic wand. Um, if. <laughs> And what we'll do is we'll take those links and we'll put them in the show notes so we've got notes to show if you yes, want to you, keep an eye yes, on what we're up to. Yes, you bloody will. I'm, a, I'm only here um, for the publicity. Exactly. And to sell my new book. Um, <laughs> if you want to keep an eye on what, what we're up to, go to the internet, search for We're Not Wizards, you'll find us. Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and our website and our blog and um, other places. If you like us really, really lots... We are on Patreon as well, but give money to Ben. Oh, give it, <laughs> give, give, it, give it to me first. Literally, I'm skint. Believe me. <laughs> Just give it to Ben. Um, but then if you want to do something for us, there's two things you can do. First of all, go and tell somebody else about us, you know. Um, secondly, go into the Apple podcast. Consider giving us a rating or a review. If you are going to be giving us a rating or a review, um, well, search Five Games for Doomsday and give that like a rating but don't give it 10 stars um, because that'll make Ben big headed but don't give it 1 star because that'll make him cry give him 5 because it's in the middle and uh, it's a bit average and you know Ben yeah, nothing, nothing little, if not average nothing if not average just like our good selves you know um, well, no, nah, that's not true because he's not average, is he? He's been absolutely wonderful. He's been absolutely fantastic. And we thank you so much. He's praying for at me some now. Time with why, us are you, why are you praying at me? I'm going to moon at you in a second. You <laughs> Don't infect me with your Presbyterianism. <laughs> You're lucky I'm not wearing my magic kilt. Um, <laughs> there's only... A couple more things to do. First of all, thank you very, very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure, sir. It's it, also I've learned some new spells. I've got a new yeah, robe. It's very exciting. There you go. Exactly. You can levitate because we did that before the show. And I can and sit in a sit in a glass box on a bridge for no reason. And if you've not got a glass box, we can actually you can pretend to be in one as well. Oh my god, are you in a glass box? No, it's that might be miming, miming magic. <laughs> that might be the finest mime I've ever seen. Bearing in mind that mime is the literally fucking worst thing that's ever existed, <laughs> puts that mime into context. 
Oh dear, there's only two more things to do. <laughs> Just to remember that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Ben? You know, the jury's out as far as I'm concerned. With that mime, who knows? Patronus. <laughs> Thank you. And the second thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from the rather wonderful, the rather fantastic, the rather questionable Ben Maddox. Say goodbye, Ben. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> and it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe. Roll sixes. And um, I mean, if you are interested in finding out what various people would take as their five games for Doomsday and then get to the end of your podcast where you're interviewing the guy who runs the five games for Doomsday podcast, realising that you haven't actually asked him what games he would take for Doomsday, then you'll be in this situation being a sad little kind of petunia like me. But until the next time, goodbye. Haka! A wizard is never late. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Mm-hmm.